And now, live on tape from Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California, it's the Rodcast. Brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the host of the Rodcast, David Steele. Well, all right, folks, we are back, back with a brand new Rodcast brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. My name is David Steele. I am excited about today's show. We we really do have a particularly good one today. And I want to thank Larry Babb straight off for that fine introduction, as always, the best in the business. And I want to thank all of you, Hot Rod Historians, uh, Hot Rod History fans, for tuning in today. Uh, it's great to have you along. Today's episode, it, it's interesting. It, this one comes from the American Hot Rod Foundation archives. And it's it's one of the first interviews that the foundation conducted and it had to be 2002 or 2003, which is amazing. That's 20 years ago now. Um, and in fact, I believe this was the third interview that was done. Tommy Sparks uh, was the first interview. Ray Brown kind of sat in with him, and they were kind of interviewed together, although the second half of that interview was was mostly Ray Brown. So I kind of consider Ray Brown the second interview. But anyway, another kind of in fact is the fact that you'll hear Ray Brown himself in the background of this interview that you're about to hear. And he was just, you know, hanging out as a supportive friend to today's subject. Uh, and wouldn't, wouldn't we all like to have Ray Brown hanging out in our shop if we're, if we're being interviewed? <laughs> um, uh, speaking of the fact that this is one of the first interviews that the foundation did, uh, something I'd like to point out is that you'll notice how you'll notice how rudimentary some of the questions are, and this is because the the foundation is, you know, kind of at its core, it's an education and research effort, and early on it was felt that a balance had to be found between questions that you know, maybe only a, a hands-on racer would understand and questions that someone with zero exposure to this world would understand if they were doing something like, uh, you know, a research paper, trying to learn from an interview like this. But later on, uh, we kind of realized that r the rudimentary questions were, were kind of throwing off the person being interviewed. And so many of those questions were removed from our you know, kind of interview template. Um, but anyway, with, with all that said, let's get to who today's subject is. And, and that would be the late, great John Wolfe. Now, for those who might not know who John was, if you're at all familiar with the history of Bonneville, you'll definitely be familiar with the Shadoff special. And if you're familiar with that effort, you will enjoy hearing John tell you in his own words, the history of that effort and his involvement in it, uh, namely being the engine builder and kind of the, you know, one of the chief engineers on that, 
on that car. Um, you know, John's Engines also won, my God, national championships in in many classes of speedboat racing. Um, of course, you know, this career, as so many of them did with guys like John, his career started in the most humble of ways. Uh, John's obsession was so extreme that he, as a teen, he kept two engines for his 36 Ford Coupe. This was his only car. One race engine and one street engine. And he would change engines every Friday afternoon when he got home from work and go street racing, go drag racing, run at the lakes, go drag racing again. And then by Sunday night, pulled it in the garage and he pulled that race engine back out, put the commuter back engine back in it so that he could go back and forth to work throughout the week. It's incredible. It's the kind of stuff that sounds like a tall tale, but we happen to know for a fact that it's not. Um, things were written about this back in the day. And John was kind of known to his friends as that's that crazy guy that changes his engine every weekend. Um, but I mean, that just shows you the kind of just raw determination and just unstoppable hot rod obsession. Um, so yeah, if that's not a hardcore hot rodder, I don't, I don't know what is. Um, and you know, on a personal note, I, I want to say that I had a, I had the great pleasure of becoming friends with John and had him to several events at my home. And we even got to go on some hot rod runs together. And John was a great guy. Uh, and a seriously humble kind of gentleman, uh, especially considering his accomplishments. And I'll share an example here of, uh, you know, what I think, well, I certainly think of this every time I think of him. This was back in the late nineties, early two thousands when I had the, I had the great fortune of having my old buddy, Tom Sparks, build me a 59, a flathead. And I got to help him with it here and there um, and learned a ton about what separated him from, uh, you know, kind of a men from the boys uh, <laughs> kind of lesson. Uh, and, it's a, and it's an experience that I will always uh, seriously treasure. But uh, yeah, when startup day came, <laughs> it was, well, first of all, it was no surprise to me that when we got the the engine on the run stand, uh, it just lit right up, like no problem. Started right up like it had been running five minutes before and we just restarted it. Um, except it had very low oil pressure at idle, like under five pounds. And Tom was absolutely horrified. Uh, and I am a hundred percent sure that when he said that in all his years, in all his years of building flatheads, and, and we've got to be talking hundreds of engines, he'd never had anything like that happen. And and I, again, I have no, no doubt that that is true. Um, but, uh, you know, Tom at that time was getting up there in years, and he had made it very clear to me that this was the last engine he was going to build, and, and I totally understood that. Um, but he also he said he just didn't have the energy to tear this thing back down 
and find whatever this issue was that was causing this low oil pressure. And I also understood that. But what he did say was that he would pay for someone that he trusted to take care of it, which I was not going to have him do that. But, and I ended up finding the problem. Uh, it was a missing oil pump shaft bushing um, that eventually I found, and it was an easy fix and just, you know, a forgetful machine shop employee. But um, anyway, uh, Tom just kept making this offer, and I said I didn't want anybody, anybody but him working on it, and that I would take care of it. And anyway, later that same day, I, I, I asked Tom, I said, well, you know, someone you trust to work on an engine you built, who, who would that person be, Tom? <laughs> and because uh, he was a pretty particular guy. And uh, anyway, without hesitation, he said, well, John Wolf. And you know, I knew who John was. I didn't know him that well at that time. I'd met him, but I knew who he was. I knew of his accomplishments. Um, but I was impressed by this because Tom was, he was so incredibly particular. And it told me that he had a huge amount of respect for Wolf. And in fact, after he gave me that answer, uh, I loved what he, he had to say next. He, he jumped right in and he said, well, either Wolf or Chrisman or or pink. Those would be the man, the, the main guys that I would trust. Um, which is man talk about a good lineup. Um, and anyway, years later, I, I told that story to John Wolf and he literally waved it away. He just, he wouldn't hear of it. And he said, I, I just can't, I can't believe that he would put me in, in, in on a list with those guys. That's big that sparks would say that. And, and, uh, I remember that John, said to me, he goes, you know, I, I am not a big deal. And, and I, I don't know, I, I'm sorry, John, but, uh, I, and I know I'm not the first to say it, but you definitely were and are a big deal. And, uh, your contribution to the sport and hobby is, it's as important as, as anyone's, um, you're an important piece to the puzzle. So, we appreciate all all that John Wolf did and uh, all that he contributed to uh, the the early days of certainly immediate post war hot rodding and and all the way into the 1990s and and right up until his passing. So I think you guys are going to enjoy this. He, he's just a a great guy, great character, and his story is just fantastic. I, I really enjoyed putting this one together. So. With all that said, sit back, strap in, and enjoy our talk with the late and very great John Wolfe. Just tell me the first time you ever, your first memory of hot rod, hot rodding or a hot rod. My, oh, well, I used to hang out with older people, and they used to do a lot of street racing, and so I'd ride my bicycle down the Kays Drive-In in North Hollywood and hang out with those guys at midnight. And after a little while, I got to know a couple of them, and they'd let me ride out there with them. How old were you? I was 14. And when, you, when did you decide to build your first hot rod? Oh, I started, when I was 14, I built my first, tried to build my first engine. Somebody gave me a 34 Ford flathead engine that was wore out, and I tore it all apart. 
and proceeded to try to make an engine out of it. Well, I tore it all apart and cleaned it all up and asked a lot of questions and tried to decide what I had to do. And it was difficult because I didn't know what I was doing. So anyhow, it came, you know, everybody said they had to have a Winfield camshaft. So the only place I knew to go, I got on the bus and the streetcar, and I go down to Hollywood to Vic Edelbrock's shop. And I go, go in. Who, who comes out but Bobby Meeks? And I tell him I want to buy this Winfield camshaft. And he wanted to know what, what was I going to do with it. No, I was going to put it in the motor. What do you mean? I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I just know I need that camshaft. And so he kind of gave me a bad time and, you know, wanted to know a whole lot of stuff. And I didn't. I just said, oh, just sell me the camshaft. And so, which he did. And I brought it home, looked at it, and admired it. Then came time he had to do a valve job. Well, I didn't have anything to do that with. So I mean, there was a shop down at four or five blocks down the street from where I lived, my folks's. And so I got my red wagon, I put the block in there, and I wheeled it down to the shop, and they ground the valve seats for me. And so I went from there and then got, got to know a guy in Hollywood, did port and relieving in flathead blocks. And so I got the block down to him. I had some of my friends load it on a truck and take it down there. And, he ported and relieved the block. This was a fellow named Bob Van Damme. I'll never forget him. And he, he told me I had to have take I had to have 32 heads were the best cylinder head to put on that block. And I had to take it downtown LA to Arco Welding and they'd weld up the chambers. I did did all this and got it finally got an engine together. And of course I didn't have a car. So a buddy of mine had a 32 five-window coupe, and so I talked to him, and said, let's put my motor in your car. So we did that. And we did a little testing and a little street racing, and then this was in 1947. So we're going to take it to the dry lakes. You know, well, didn't know that you had to belong to a club and all this, but otherwise you couldn't run. So anyhow, new friend of mine, Bill Yates, and he, he said, well, he'd enter it and drive it. Oh, wonderful. So we did this and ran 101 miles an hour and thought we were really doing something. And the record in those days was 111. A fellow named Don Brown had the record. So anyhow, we felt pretty good about this. That was the first time. First trip to El Mirage. In those days, we drove the car up there at this time. You know, and it was an all-day affair, all day and all night. We'd go out there and spend the night, you know, sleep on the, on the dry lake bed. Yeah, what was the scene like? Were the people, like, drinking beer and having a good time? Oh, everybody having a good time and running the cars. The runner didn't get killed at night because everybody's out there testing in the middle of the night and not knowing where they're going. And, a lot of drinking, <laughs> and it was, you know, pretty bad, not too safe. What were your feelings about racing? Was that, that was the first time, right? Oh, yeah, and I loved it. <laughs> Never had so much fun. So how did you move 
what were your thoughts then? What, did you want to build a bigger engine or faster? Or? No. In fact, then, because, in other words, I really was too young and everything, and I, and I didn't belong to anything, so that, that was really the only time we ran it then. From then on, it was a little bit of street racing and doing that until, I think, 1949. I, my dad bought me a 40 Ford Coupe. This is when I graduated from high school. And so I had this 40 Coupe, and I built another engine for it and ran that. And that was the first time was in 49. We ran the coupe, and... Can you tell me what the components were of the engine? Uh, this was a flathead, D-stroke flathead. It was a flathead with 3 and 5 sixteenths bore and a 3 and 5 eighth stroke. It was an eighth inch D-stroke to fit in a class. And we ran that, and I pretty sure it was in the end of 49, we ran 123 with this coupe and ran that for two years, you know, and couldn't, you know, really go as fast as we th thought we needed to go. Plus, I was going to school, and so I changed in engines every other week because to go to school, I'd put stock motor back in. Come the weekend to go, I put the other motor in and did this. I finally got tired of that, so I decided I needed a smaller coupe because I liked the coupe. So I got a 36 three window coupe and made that into a Dry Lakes car. Spent a year cutting holes in the frame, cutting all the metal out of the inside of the car, and, and ran that first in 19. 50 or 51, and didn't, you know, we are having troubles, run 110, 115, finally ran 135 and got a first place, which was tickled to death for that, and then we used to, you know, coming back from the dry lakes, we'd stop at Saugus and get the drag racers, you know, that way you could get two things in on the same day. Were you trying to streamline it, or were you trying to... Well, no, because you couldn't do too much. In other words, it was a stock-bodied class, and, you know, you could take the bumpers off and do this and that, but you could chop the top, but I didn't. One of the fellows that I was in the Army, you know, I got drafted in between times here, you know, because when I, in 1952, I got drafted in the Army, and I left the coop here, and I, some friends of mine ran it until they blew the engine up. So then Buddy Fox and Tom Cobbs, they borrowed the car and put their blown engine in it and ran it, El Mirage, with it. And they, they broke a record with it. They ran 152 miles an hour with it. A fellow named Major Gilbert was driving it. And then they ran again, and they flipped it. It went end over end at El Mirage and destroyed it. So they wrote me a big letter over in Korea telling me about what was nothing left of the car, which had happened. So when I got home, my loving girlfriend Virginia bought me another 36 coupe for $15.
And so me and Buddy Fox, we created another coop. And that's the one we ran until about 1955. Who were the real record breakers? Um, well, in the coop class, the main record holder was a fellow named Don Brown. And then beyond that, then he quit. And I think then the major coop fellow was a fellow named Joe Torvik, belonged to the L.A. Coops Club. I beat him once at El Mirage, and I, I don't remember what year it was. And it was the Rosetta Timing Association that I belonged to and ran, because in those early days, SCTA wouldn't run any coops. They'd just run roadsters. And I think it was 51 or 52 when the SCTA finally invited some coops to run, and that's when it started. And then for a while, I ran Rosetta and... SCTA. And what uh, what was the purpose of the SCTA? Well, it was just two different associations, basically. In other words, Rosetta originally was coops and roadsters. You know, it was a little bit of everything. And SCTA was originally was just strictly roadsters or open wheel cars and streamliners, but not a not a stock bodied car. When you were building your the engines then, did you do it on your own, or where did you build them? Did you have friends around? Or? Well, I had a lot of friends, and I got to... I had one real good friend, Dave DeLangton, and Alex Exidius ended up marrying his sister. And anyhow, I got to know Alex, and we, you know, I started buying stuff from him. And then we got to be, you know, he kind of sponsored the car a little bit. We called the coupe the SoCal Coupe, and he'd help me on parts and on doing valve work. You know, they had a shop, and Keith, fellow that worked for Alex, you know, he would do all, a lot of the valve work for me because it was stuff I couldn't do at home. I didn't have no valve machine. <laughs> you know, I had to rely on a lot of different people to do a lot of things. What were you? Um, <clears throat> what kind of tools did you have back then? Well, all I basically had was, of course, screwdrivers and crescent wrenches. And my dad bought me a set of New Britain sockets and ratchets and stuff. This, I think, he really begrudged. He wished he'd have never bought me that, but he did. I can't remember, but that was when I was about 15 years old. He, I had a pretty good set of tools. That, I, that part I had, the hand tools I could handle, but from there on I didn't have anything. And of course I did this in my folks' garage. You know. With a lot of people that I've interviewed, their parents weren't too happy about them hot running. What did your parents think about it? Well, to a point it was all right. And then it, when it got a little more serious, no, then because a couple times I'd going to go to the dry lakes, I'd go out there at 3 o'clock in the morning, get ready to take the car, and he'd lock, put a big padlock on the garage, and I couldn't get out. And then I'd have to go get a hacksaw and saw the lock off and, and go. And quite a few nights when we'd be working at 1, 2 in the morning, he would go through the circuit breaker and no more power in the garage, you know. It, it got a little touchy there for a while. Um, what about the street racing? When did you 
when did you uh, start street racing? When did you first see it? Oh, actually, it was probably in 40, oh, 48, 49, because I did quite a bit. I had a 40 coupe, and then sometimes I'd leave the lakes engine in, and then we'd go street racing. And where would you, what was the scene? Describe the scene for me. Yeah, well, it would be different places, different nights of the week. And, of course, go meet somewhere and drive out. You know, there was North Sepulveda, and then we used to go to Agora. This was when they were starting to build some of the freeways, and they had a, some stretches that were a couple miles long out in Agora. One night, I actually, you know, had fuel in the 40 coupe and towed it out there. We had there was only there was only four cars out there, and anyhow, I was sitting there warming it up, and highway patrol came, pulled right in front of me, had the red light, and I was in had a friend of mine named Herbie Papazian was sitting with me. I had a bucket seat in the car, and <laughs> everything, and he was sitting on a box next to me, and I looked at him and I said, "There's a red light," and I said, "Herbie, what are we gonna do?" And he said, "Go." So we took off, got clear back down to Tarzana and ran out of fuel and pushed the car over into a bunch of trees and sat there and waited till 2 in the morning until they came back by with it and flagged down the fellow that towed me out there to get it back home. And I said, what What? What did the highway patrol do when, when I left? And he said, all they want to know who's a crazy son of a bitch that went running down the street. He said they didn't do anything. Just... I, I didn't know. I was scared. What? Um, how would you challenge someone? Who who was racing who? And was it very competitive, or was it just? Oh, it was pretty competitive. Yeah, it would. You know, it'd, it'd be talking it up in the drive-ins. You know, we used to hang out at different drive-ins every night, and you know, you want to race this guy or race that guy. You say my car's faster than your car. We're gonna go find out. Was it very competitive? I would say, yeah, I'm pretty competitive, you know, you, you really was trying to beat the other guy always, you know, you, you wanted to be faster, you know, got beat a lot of times. <laughs> and what was the um, reputation that Hot Rod has had with, with uh, the police, with the press, with the... Uh, uh, not too good in those early days. Because I can remember out at North Sepulveda, even before I was running, you know, I'd go out there and watch. And then when we did, you know, because it was always on a Wednesday night and everybody didn't go out there till midnight. And, of course, it was a stretch that was like two miles long. And it'd be lined solid with both sides of the street with spectators. And the police would come and people throw rocks and Coke bottles at them and this and that. And there was a standard station up at the far end of Sepulveda was where San Fernando Road came. This was all before freeways. And everybody would hang out in that standard gas station. Well, the police had come and they'd pull in there. And one night they pulled in, everybody congregated around the police car, they let the air out of the tires, everything. And this went on for, oh, two or three months probably. And then they, the police finally, they, they had it. You know, that's they came up with a big thing. They blocked off both ends of Sepulveda, and I think like 500 people went to jail. It was lucky I wasn't there that night. And um, well, I can see why the press gave you a bad name, but uh, 
did they, um, like what was your, what did the girlfriends think? They probably wanted a nice sort of accountant or lawyer to marry, or, you know, what did your, what did well, your wife think? Well, she, well, she didn't have any choice, you know. She used to go with me because I also would work a lot on the car. I had friend Bill Yates and Bob Bowen, they had a shop which is in Universal City now, which actually they call it kind of North Hollywood at the time. And I go down there working it every night. And she would go with me and sit out in the car because, you know, after we got done about midnight or so, we'd always go to the drive-in and have hamburger or something. And that was our big night out. You know, how she put up with it, I don't know, but she did. Racing the dry lakes, what was your favorite lake in... Well, the favorite one was El Mirage because we'd gone to some other ones. We ran at Roseman, and there was a, oh, trying to think. There was a dry lake out of Barstow. I think they called it Goldstone or something. And, you know, it was bad, bad dry lake. We tried it, but, you know, it'd be just powdery dirt and everything, and it wasn't too good. I mean, we did run at two or three different ones. You know, because by the time I got into it, Muroc was already closed. They turned that into an Air Force base, and you couldn't run there anymore. So El Mirage was the best one, which it still is today. How did drag racing come to be? Uh, it, I would say the drag racing started probably in about 1949 or 50, I if I remember right, the first drag race, drag strip was in Santa Ana, and I I only ran there once. It was kind of hard for me to get there, and then they, Lou Bainey and Louis Center started Saugus drag strip. Okay, so then we spent a lot of time there, practically every weekend if we could. You know, even we'd run dry lakes in the morning and. Then, Sunday afternoon, go to Saugus, the drag strip. Oh, but why did they spring up? What, what was wrong with the, with the dry lakes? Well, it was more often. You could do it, and it was closer, you know, and the drag racing was just completely different. You know, it was more like street racing, only you could do it legally. And, you know, and that was the beginning of the drag strips. I'm pretty sure Santa Ana was the first one, and then there's Two or three others sprung up, but I spent most all of my time at Saugus. And then, of course, when I went in the Army, I was gone for a while, and when I came back, Saugus finally closed down, and they opened the San Fernando drag strip. What, uh, what, were, you, what were you running at, uh, at the drags? A 36 three-window coupe, same one I run at El Mirage and Bonneville. Because yeah, it actually in 1951 it took it to Bonneville. I wonder what were you doing to the because surely with a, isn't it a different type of racing drag? Were you doing anything different to the engine or different to the car? No, basically the same thing to the engine. I mean it, you know, it, it, I probably there were things I could have done that would have been better, but I didn't know it. You know, all we would do is. The very first car didn't have a quick change rear end, so I would end up just, you know, running low in second gear to do that. And later on, we put a quick change in it, and then we could run second and high gear. 
what is a quick change? Can you explain? Or you, where you could easily change the gear ratio in the differential. And what kind of fuel were you running? We were running alcohol with a little bit of nitro. In those days, I was, you know, would run 20% nitro because I thought that was the most you could possibly put in there. Anything more than that, you know, would explode the engine. Little did I know. You know. Then they run like 100, they run nitro, 100% nitro now, don't they? Almost, yes. In those days, you know, there was like Mickey Thompson and a few other ones that were brave, and they would like run 50, 60%, which I didn't know it, and I don't think a lot of other people knew they were running that much. And, you know, everybody thought, boy, I mean, if you're 20%, that's a lot. And did they, were there any sort of disastrous effects of um, running alcohol and nitro? Yeah, it, that was alcohol and nitro. Yeah, you would mix the nitro with the alcohol. What kind of, did you get any records drag racing in those early days? Not, no, I don't think so. You know, because like the fastest, like at Saugus, the fastest we ever went was 100 miles an hour. And, and you know, and that was with a coupe, and the, the roadsters were running, oh, 115 like this, you know, because we used to try to, you know, run coops against coops and roadsters against roadsters. Were there some people there, who were the sort of kings of the drag strips in those early days? Were there people who who, who were building, taking the records the whole time? or? Well, there was the people that would win all the time, yeah. In fact, you know, we were talking to Ray about who was the guy that had the little Fiat coupe. Well, I, I remember now, it was Jazzy Nelson. All right, I'm going to ask the question again. Who was the, um, who were the sort of, who were the people setting the records then? I would say in those days it was Jazzy Nelson with, had a flathead and a Fiat coupe, and he was in those days at August he was just about unbeatable. What did he have that other people didn't have? He had a good engine, a little lightweight car that would go quick, very quick. What, um, in, in those days, you know, they didn't have e elapsed times, or they didn't take the elapsed times. They would just go by the speed at the end, you know. But he actually, his elapsed times were quicker than anybody's. He'd always get down there first. What kind of speeds was he getting? Uh, believe it or not, I can't really remember. I would guess it was but around 120, 130 maybe. I, I really don't remember speed-wise. That's quite a, I mean, that's still pretty fast. Very fast for then. So, can you just tell me a bit about your experience in the, in the, uh, were you in the Air Force or the Army? In the Army. Yeah, I got drafted. I didn't want to join. I got drafted. And, and me and my high school buddy, Dave DeLankton, we both got drafted together. And, of course, we went up to Fort Ord, and that's where we started out, and they gave us some tests, and we kept telling them the only thing, we, we were mechanics. We couldn't do anything else. You know. And I guess they finally believed us, because we were there for two weeks, and then they, we both got shipped to Aberdeen, Maryland. It was an ordinance basic training, which was only eight weeks, where the infantry basic training was 16 weeks, so that this was much better. 
And halfway through that basic training, they gave you a whole bunch of tests and told you that the better you did on the test, you'd have a better, more choice of schools you could go to. So me and Dave, we both did good on the test, and so we could pick any school we wanted. So we picked an aircraft mechanic school at an Air Force base in Texas. And so we both went down to San Marcos, Texas, went through the school, you went through a light aircraft school first, and they took the top three out of each class and went to helicopter school. So, which we made that, and we ended up doing the helicopter. So. And while I was down in San Marcos, my dad brought my 40 coupe down because we had a lot of spare time. We only had to go to school from 8 till 12. And we were off and didn't have any duties. We didn't have to do anything because we were the Army on the Air Force base. So that, and we got to know some of the instructors from San Diego, and we all went together. There was about 10 of us went together and rented a 15,000-square-foot shop that was about 10 miles from the base. And that, in those days, that cost $15 a month. And so we would go out there every every afternoon and every weekend and, and work on our cars. And they had some cars, and we'd go drag racing down there. We In San Antonio, we'd drag race on a quarter horse track on the straightaway in the dirt. <laughs> and, then, uh, and we went to another Air Force base that was closed already for some reason or other. It was a concrete strips that was outside of Dallas, Texas, and we'd go there and drag race. The only thing was that I drove the car and got a ticket on the base once, and I wasn't allowed to bring the car back on the base, which was fine because we had the shop to keep it in. So when I got drafted, I was working in the new car get-ready department. What were you doing then? Was it mechanical or...? Well, just servicing brand new cars, getting ready to sell, you know, just checking the fluid levels, put the air in the tires and make sure it all worked and wasn't anything drastically wrong. At that point, what did you, because you were quite young, did you have a vision of what you wanted to do as a, a career or...? Not really. Not really. I just know I needed to work to try to make a dollar. Yeah, and then it, while I was doing that, then I got drafted, and I was gone for two years. And I got when I came back, you know, that position was filled. But they did take me back, and I polished cars for you know, about six months, just polishing cars. And then they had an opening up in the front. You know, the boss's son was a service writer. So they wanted to know if I wanted to try doing service writing, which I did. I, I service wrote for about six months. And then I ended up, I didn't really care for that, and I needed a dispatcher to dispatch the work. So I was a dispatcher for four or five years. All I did was hand out the work to the mechanics. So you didn't even do any hands-on? No, no hands-on. Which is, can I want to get... How, what did you learn in the uh, army on helicopters that you could apply to cars? Or, or, what kind of things were you doing first of all? Oh well, in the school, you know, of course, we learned all of it. 
you know, and of course I learned to be meticulous and careful. And, you know, I think that's what benefited me more than anything as far as, you know, being really careful and trying to do quality work, you know, that seemed to help more than anything because when I actually got out of school and did helicopter work, it really wasn't that much. You know, I went to Korea and I ended up running a Magnaflux and Zyglo shop. What is, what is that? Well, magnetic particle inspection of metal parts and the Zyglo was for the non-ferrous parts which were in aluminum and that kind of stuff which you would soak it in a penetrant and see if you could find cracks. Did you, um, was the technology or the, the mechanics of a helicopter engine different from, or could you apply that when you got back to... Well, all basics, I mean, different from, you know, what we were doing hot rodding, but, you know, of course they were, you know, still piston engine and they're all basically the same. You know, this was before any of the jet engines and so forth, because they were all piston engines. What, um, when you came back from the war, what did you, and you worked for Ford, how did you pick up hot rodding or what happened then? Oh, well, I was, you know, because all my friends were still involved in it, and I just kind of fit right back into it. I built another coupe right away and and went on from there. And, and in fact, took one engine in 1955. We put it in Phil, Phil Frutiger's Roadster. He had a modified Roadster. And in 1955, we took it to Bonneville and ran 188 miles an hour. A fellow named Jim Kugas was driving it, and on a return run, he forgot to get the shutoff valve on all the way, and we burnt the pistons out of it. What, uh, when was the first time you went to Bonneville? Can you remember that? 1951. And what, what did you go with? I went with a 36 coupe and ran 135 miles an hour and tied Art Chrisman for third place. And who, on that year, got the, do you remember who was getting the records then, or? No, Bob Jonick was second, and who ran first, I, I can't remember. Well, first of all, what, was your first, what were your impressions of Bonneville and your expectations? Oh, well, it was, you know, the first time, it that was unbelievable. I, you know, I'd never even really seen pictures before, you know, and to go up there and see that massive thing of salt, you know, as far as you could see, I mean, it it was really something. And when you built the coupe to go up to Bonneville, can you just explain to me how you put that together, where you got the parts, what you were... Well, parts-wise, you know, it was basically all Ford stuff, you know, with the exception by then I had a quick change rear end in it, and, you know, and then had the flathead motor. But basically it was a, all, all Ford parts. I mean, there wasn't too much specialty stuff, you know, other than engine-wise and, and the rear end. You know, and of course we didn't run a radiator or anything. Had a water tank in the back to put weight on the rear wheels, and just recirculated the water. What um, 
you know, after the war, there were a lot of speed parts coming out. How was the flathead changing? And who, who was making stuff? I mean, I know Stu Hillborn was the... Stu Hillborn was making injectors, which I couldn't afford. I had to run carburetors. And, of course, we, I ran Evans cylinder heads, Edelbrock cylinder heads, different manifolds, Edelbrock, Wyant manifolds, tried different things, you know. Basically, they were all the same. I couldn't see any difference in any of them. Did, were people quite um, loyal to one speed shop and the other, or did you... I would say ye, probably yes. In other words, I got you know to know Alex pretty well and used to try to buy most of the stuff from him. I bought a set of heads from Ray Brown, first set of Evans heads. They work all right? They work fine. And uh, did, what was SoCal doing then? Because I know that they, they were, were they building the belly tank at that point? They had the belly tank. The belly tank belonged to Dave DeLankton, which was, you know, my high school friend. He's the one that built the tank. And then and, and Alex, how he actually first got involved, I'm not sure. There was a fellow named Clyde Sturdy that also helped Dave with it, with the, with the belly tank. And... Can you tell me about the uh, the record you broke with the Shadoff and, and uh, how you broke it and whose record you broke? This was the Shadoff Streamliner we ran in 1959. A good friend of mine, Bob Bowen, got the car and rebuilt it. He had driven it in 1954 when they had Ray Brown's Chrysler in it and ran and got the records, got the international records with it. And he had drove it. And so then the car sat all this time. And so Bob wanted to run it. And Malcolm Hooper let him have Malcolm Hooper owned it and let him take the car. And he completely redid the car. And I used to go out. He lived in Moore Park at the time. And I'd help him. And then I had built this little Dodge motor, a 258-inch Hemi Dodge. And we were going to put that motor in the car. And so we, you know, we worked every night of the week and finally finally got it all together. And so we took it to Bonneville in 1959. And this was an SCTA meet. And we ran 259 one way, and I forget what the return run was. I think 240-something. Anyhow, we ended up, we averaged 252. And that gave us the SCTA record, you know, the national record. So then, this was what Shadoff, also Bill Shadoff, he got involved in it. That because when I originally had built a Dodge, I had carburetors on it. Well, this didn't want to work too well, and Shadoff bought me a set of injectors for it, which we ran. So then after we got the SCTA record, it was looking pretty good to run for the international record. And so Chadoff wanted to do that, and Firestone ended up paying for the time. We went in 1960 back to Bonneville. There was a fellow named Athol Graham, had a streamliner with an Allison in it, and we had the Shadoff car with a Dodge, 
we were the only two cars there. And USAC was doing the timing, and Firestone had paid for all this. And then we ran for the international record, which we got that. We got the, the one kilometer, the one mile, the five mile, five kilometer, and five mile, and ten kilometer records. This was in 1960. Who was Bill Shadow? I mean, what was his role in the. He, he owned a Chrysler Plymouth dealership in Pomona. And what was his... Uh... He, did, he, he liked it and was involved, and, of course, it had, you know, Dodge motor and Plymouth. We called it a Plymouth. It was a 1955 Plymouth motor. And, um, and yeah, sorry. What, you know, he, other than the fact that he just enjoyed it, I don't know that it benefited him a whole lot, but... Can you talk about the design of that streamliner? Because was that the first streamliner you, you... Well, it was the first one I was ever involved with, which, of course, you know, the car was built in 53, I think, and, of course, they ran Ray Brown's Chrysler in it and was very successful with it and got all the records at that time. What, uh... Yeah, so can we talk about some of the, the engines you built in cars specifically that, um... We're breaking records. The only, the only one really was the Shadoff, as far as that, you know, that we broke any records. And, you know, and of course, I kind of did that for myself rather than for somebody else. Um, I didn't start building engines for other people until like 1964, start doing engines for boats. And ended up, I was building engines for seven different boats. Gonna say, at that time I didn't have a boat. I was just a friend of mine, Bob Patterson, built boats. He built runabouts and hydroplanes. And my how I first got started was Louis Center was doing the engines for a 266 hydroplane for a fellow named Laird Pierce. And they had nothing but troubles and troubles and troubles, and Bob Patterson had built the boat, so he talked Laird into having me do the engine for him, which I did, and we got successful with it and won the national championship in 1965, and I was doing engines for some cracker boxes. In fact, there was for Leroy Penhall, and Dick Maxwell and Phil Shipley, they all had cracker boxes. And when I was doing the end, they all had small block Chevrolets. We ran those, with the exception we had one Ford in Dick Maxwell's boat. We were, and I was real happy with that, because we won a lot of races with a cracker box. And then there was uh, Bob St. John had a super stock that had a 427 Ford in it, and I was doing that one. And Leroy Penhall also had an SK boat with a Chrysler in it. I was doing the motor in that one. We were doing these all at the same time, all in this little part of the garage, every night till 2 in the morning. Wow, that's amazing. You know, and the worst part was that they all, you know, the boat races were always the same day, and they were all different class boats. But they all raced the same day. <laughs> Why? What is it about Ford for you? 
uh, just because everybody had a Chevrolet, and and I just I, I want to try to do something different. What is the difference, even emotionally? What is the difference between a Ford Flathead and a small block Chevy for you? Oh, the diff well, the night and day difference because the Flathead, you know, that's the reason everybody quit running them. You couldn't make any horsepower; they wouldn't breathe. You couldn't get any air in them. And when they came out with the overhead valve engines, which mainly to begin with was a small block Chevrolet, and that's what we did for quite a while. Because I didn't do the Ford until it was like 1966 or 67, when a friend of mine, Dix Maxwell, had the Cracker Box, and he bought from Bob Patterson, built it for him. And I said, I'd like to build a small block Ford for it. You know, if you want to spend the money, we'll take and try it. I don't know whether it'll work or not. Which, and it ended up, it worked well. When, um, were most people running Ford flatheads or were most people running small block Chevys or? In, in the early days, there were no small block Chevys. Those didn't arrive until 1955. In other words, it was in the in the 40s, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s. It was mainly Ford flatheads, but there were some GMC six cylinders that were ran and ran very successfully. They were an overhead valve engine, which was actually superior to the flathead. But there weren't many people that ran them. Now, the Chrysler, Chrysler was 51. Came they, I don't know. I just wasn't familiar with them. You know, I never even really gave them a thought in those days. But actually, there was like Nicky Arias ran real good with the GMC. You know, set records, went fast. And I think before my time, there was some four-cylinder Chevrolets that ran in the 30s that ran fast. Of course, we didn't have hardly any money in those days, and you would do it. You know, the flatheads were, there were so many around, they were so readily available that the flathead itself was cheap. You know, it was pretty reasonable. And, you know, the speed equipment was, of course, in those days we thought it was an awful lot of money, but compared to today, it was nothing. But it was hard to come by. You know, I can remember I'd, you know, I'd spend more money than I made in a week's time. You know, I'd end up, I'd never get a paycheck at the, the Ford agency because I'd spend it all in parts. What did you, um, I mean, I don't, were they like, what were the junkyards like? Were there just thousands of frames? And there was... Car parts were readily available. There were a lot of junkyards, and you could, like, in the the first 36 coupe I bought, I paid $25 for. You know, and, and I sold the engine for 10 They didn't want the engine that came with it. And that was the first one. The second one, I got for $15, because it didn't have an engine. It was just a coupe without an engine. And then, of course, a lot of it was just plain old hard work, you know. In other words, actually, at today's standards, it wasn't done very nicely. <laughs> what was the difference between, um, was there a sort of a difference between 
people who have customized their car early on, like in the 40s, late 40s, and people who ran them on the lakes. Yeah, there was a big difference, basically, because the custom cars were custom cars, and they were done for beauty, you know, more, much more so than for speed. And then there were a few that were a combination of both. You know, but most of them, in other words, anybody that really had a pretty night, you know, good, didn't want to take it to El Mirage up there in the dirt. You know, because once you got that dust from the lake bed in the you couldn't get it out. You know, it just, it was there forever almost. And like Bonneville, worse yet, was salt, and the salt would rust everything. <laughs> It wasn't a good environment for a custom car, you know, or what you would call a custom car that somebody built to be really pretty. Was it a different kind of person who had a, um, a custom car to the people who just raced for speed? Yes, big difference. And I think that's today the same way. What kind of, just paint a portrait of some, of, were they... What kind of person would be into customs and what kind of person would be into speed? Oh, I would say people that weren't as mechanically inclined or, you know, didn't do a lot of the work themselves. You know, in other words, it's like myself, you know, I know I can't paint. I'm not a metal man and you just... I don't know. I would say just different type people. <laughs> How you're going to explain that, I don't know. What, um, I want to understand about can grinding. I don't, I still don't understand how they, what, how were can grinders uh, in those early days viewed? Because it was a very specific art, wasn't it? Yeah, and there, was, there weren't many of them. There, they were, in those days, were very few. And, of course, the different cam grinders, they, I think they all had their own different ideas as what would work. You know, and I think they did a lot of experimenting. You know, I think they ground a lot of cams and sold and gave to people to try because, they, you know, they had no way of knowing how it would work till they gave it to somebody to try. You know, in, the, in the, those days, there wasn't many engine dynamometers. You know, so the only way you could really tell whether it worked better or worse was to put it in the engine and put it in the car and go run it. You know, and I think the cam grinders learned a lot from the people that were actually running them. Who, who were the, some of the cam grinders around, some of the early ones? Well, the early ones were Ed Winfield and Ed Eskandarian and, oh... There were some Weber camshafts, and who that really was, I don't know. And I think, I might be wrong there, but I think Spalding may have gone into grinding some cams. And there was Kenny Harmon. They were called them Harmon and Collins camshafts. Kenny Harmon did all the camshaft work. And all of them were a little different. Now, do you remember, um, there, there are so few... Uh women who raced on the lakes. But I know Vita Orr was one of them. Do you... I, I think she was before my time. I don't think she was ever running when I did. I think she was more in the late 30s and early 40s, 
possibly. I'm not even sure of that. I know the name, and I know she did, but when she did that, I don't know. It was mainly, uh, were there many women? Uh... No. No, hardly none. What, um, when you were racing up at Bonneville and, and on the lakes, what kind of, what was the safety like, the safety aspects of racing? Oh, they were just fair. I mean, they had some, you know, you, you had to have seat belts, you had to have a crash helmet, and most of the cars had a roll bar in it. I don't know how mandatory that was at that time. I don't remember when, what year it actually became mandatory. You know, we had roll bars in the car, and whether I just did it or had to do it, I don't remember. Um, I mean, because there are some stories of people sitting on apple boxes and racing these things at 100. <laughs> yeah, which, which I don't know. My, my, of course, first car was my 40 coupe, and I had an old surplus aircraft bucket seat that I put in it. Were you getting a lot of um, uh, attention from Detroit at this time, like early on? Did they want to know what was going on? Was there a relationship there? Not, not, not with me. No, there may, if there was, I didn't, I wasn't aware of it. Okay. Um, just before we go to, and you show me about the engine, um, I wanted to ask you about Hot Rod magazine and how that really helped hot rodding. It, or were you aware of how much it it um, changed hot rodding or, or uh, promoted it? Or? Well, I think it made a whole lot more people aware of it. And, of course, you know, of course it had all the ads and all the different things. I mean, if you wanted to try to buy something, you know, you might see something in the magazine that interested you. Other than that, I don't know that it was much of a help. I mean, as far as I was concerned... I didn't, you know, I didn't know whether to believe what I read or whatever, or it'd be something that was completely out of my price line, you know. In other words, I, I don't know. I never really paid too much, much attention to it. I, I got the Hot Rod magazine in those days, and I would glance through it, and they went in the trash. You know, a lot of people saved them, and I didn't. You know, a big mistake, but I've made a lot of mistakes. Um, why was hot running always a kind of working man's pursuit? I, to me, it was the challenge, you know, is, you know, just try to go faster than somebody else. You know, to me, almost like the Bonneville and and Dry Lakes in those days was a lot more competitive than today, you know, because you would go and there'd be, oh, 10, 15, 20 cars in each class. Like today, there's only one or two cars in each class. I mean, it's to me, it, you know, it's not the same competitiveness there that it was in the early days. You know, now it's more you try to break the existing record, but there's not that many people trying. Did you get into the 200-mile-an-hour club? No, because I don't drive. <laughs> Did any of your engines ever get in? A lot of them. Which ones in particular? 
Oh, well, it was the Dodge in the Shadoff car, and I, I got, oh. And a, one small block Ford, did a modified roadster that got Willie Frutiger in the 200 mile an hour club. Because and with Bowen, he was already in the 200 mile an hour club when he when we broke the record with the Shadoff car. He was already in it, just upped his speed. And let me think, who else? How did that make you feel? Oh, real good. I mean, that's all I, being the engine builder, that's all I get was the pat on the back. Because a lot of the boat engines I did, I did for free. You know, just for to do it. You know, that was the only thing that made me feel good was run around and when we did good and get the pat on the back. I guess, what are your best memories over the years from the hot running? Oh, well, they're all good. <laughs> I, well, I think some of the best ones were probably some of the street racing. <laughs> and the early Bonneville was, you know, an awful lot of hard work and not much success sometimes. Why was street racing such great memories for you? Oh, it, I don't, it was just a lot of fun, yeah, you know, and it, it was competitive. Just in the speed, was there money involved ever in street racing? No, not, not when we were doing it, no. I think it, that became later, but not at that time, no. At least not for me. You know, if some of them other heavy hitters were <laughs> racing for money, I wasn't aware of it. And I, in those days, I don't think a lot of the people that did that had it much money. I mean, that's a, you know, it seems like most of the hot rods I talked to back in those days never had any money. It wasn't rich kids doing it. Why was that? I, I don't know. Because, it, you know, that was always the big problem, was always not enough money. How is hot rodding an important part of American history, do you think, would you say? Oh, I think it's probably led to a lot of innovations as far as new cars go and so forth. I think the manufacturers finally learned a little bit from that, you know, the more it progressed. You know, I don't think they were too interested in the real early days, other than the fact that I've heard that, you know, even Henry Ford was a little interested back in the early 30s and so forth, you know, they must have thought something of racing because I've seen movies and stuff of when they ran 34 Fords, you know, a lot of them. And what, um, like what are, what's the equivalent of hot running today, do you think? What are kids doing today? Oh, today they are with the, with the Japanese cars, the little four-cylinder cars. You know, that, that's becoming real popular, I think. And the street racing is back <laughs> with that. In other words, I just read an article in the paper where they, you know, just closed down some streets up in Sunland that were a problem with street racing. You know, they're to the point where they're putting people in jail and confiscating and keeping the cars. Did you feel tempted to go up there and... Uh... No. 
Street race? No, not at all. I'm not going to jail. <laughs> One other question is, why didn't you why didn't you drive? It scared me. I drove up. I drove till the first year at Bonneville. I, I drove at the Dry Lakes somewhat, and went and tried to drive at Bonneville in 1951. And the first run scared me. And that's when I put, had Dave DeLankton drive from then on. From then on, I didn't drive anything. And how would you want to be remembered uh, for your achievements? For what achievements and how, how would you want to be remembered? Oh, I would think that I'd like to be remembered for being able to build a pretty good engine that, you know, that would stay together and go reasonably fast. And do you have a favorite engine that you built or broke a record with? And what is it? Oh, I would have to say, well, it's the one thing was the little Dodge that we ran in the Shadoff car, because in other words, it was 258 cubic inches unblown. And the class, you were allowed 305 cubic inches blown for the international rules. And I felt that, you know, we really accomplished quite a bit being handicapped. You know, we gave away a lot. You were saying that, you know, the, the end result, you know, you build these engines, you build some of these engines for free, you know, or spend so much time into the wee hours of the morning. Why? What was it all for, for you? It, it was for the pat on the back. Just, you know, I, I wanted to be able to do it, and... But was it... What's the psychology behind that? What's <laughs> I, I don't know. We're probably stupid. <laughs> All right. You know, I did I, some I did get paid for, but there was some that, you know, like the one little Ford project. I mean, I, I wanted to try to make the Ford go better than the Chevrolet. Oh, I went, well, when this was in the Cracker Box class, in which, you know, Three of the boats I were doing had small block Chevrolets in them, and I talked this one fella into, let's try a small block Ford. You know, I, you pay for the parts and I'll do all the work. You know, and, and it ended, it worked out well. You know, and, and then when I built the, my own hydroplane, the first one, you know, and I had a Ford in it, and we had won the national championship twice with it, and set the straightaway record, international straightaway record with it, with a Ford in it, with everybody, every other boat in the class had a Chevrolet in it. And how do you feel? They make me feel very good. Well, there you have it, folks. There you have it. Another great episode of the Rodcast brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. Extra special thanks to our guest, John Wolf for sitting down with us, oh, those many years ago. What a great way to start off the 20-year project so far that has been the American Hot Rod Foundation interview series, getting, you know, to sit down with him. I, I wasn't there, obviously. That was a previous foundation director, Henry Astor, doing that great work of kind of gathering up John's great story and preserving it for all of us. So we thank him for that. And again, we thank John for his time. 
Extra special thanks, as always, to our announcer, Larry Babb, and all the staff here at Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California. We want to thank our PR person, Angela Helton, our social media management, which comes from Crystal Hayes, technical assistance from Eric Curtis, Cole Kuntz, and Katie Sloan. And as always, all Rodcast music is written and performed by me. Special thanks to our archivist and historian, Jim Miller, who is always doing the heavy lifting and keeping us honest. The American Hot Rod Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and was founded in 2002 by Steve and Carol Mamishian for the sole purpose of documenting and preserving the history of hot rodding. Without their generosity and passion for this work, none of this would be possible. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about the foundation, please go to our website, ahrf.com. You can support us there by checking out our merchandise, making a donation, or better yet, sign up, become a supporting member of the, of the foundation. And among a whole lot of other perks, you'll get to enjoy the video versions of many of these broadcasts uh, that you're listening to here. And you can also follow us, of course, across all our social media channels, Facebook, Instagram. We'll provide you with daily posts uh, consisting of historical images pulled from our archives, including a lot of great photos of John Wolfe and his great career. He, he was very generous with us. That way we scanned a lot of his photos and, and just wonderful stuff. Again, huge thanks to, to John for his generosity, for being a, a great friend to me and a great friend of the American Hot Rod Foundation and for everything he contributed to our, our great American pastime. Uh, so thank you, John, for that. And with that, we thank you for tuning in and we hope you've enjoyed this episode and we hope you'll join us next time right here for another great episode of The Rodcast. Thanks for listening to another great episode of The Rodcast, brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation.